Welcome to Solana. We are a super fast blockchain project bringing proof of history and in turn 100,000x speeds to the blockchain ecosystem. This podcast is a discussion between our core staff, industry leaders, and top contributors to our open source project. Find out more at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Solana. Now, on to the show. So I'm Brad, co-founder at Unstoppable Domains. We are a registry business similar to Verisign, which owns .com, uh, except that we build our domain name systems on blockchains. And the reason why is because blockchain domains do two things that regular domains don't. The first is to be your cryptocurrency payment gateway to replace all of your crypto addresses with one single human readable name. So you could attach your Bitcoin, your Ethereum, your Litecoin, your Solana addresses, everything all to one domain. You tell me your domain, I type it into a wallet and pay you. I don't need to know what your addresses are. I don't even need to know which currency that you want to receive. And the second thing they do is to allow you to build uncensorable websites. So because the domain is an asset on the blockchain, controlled by you, it sits inside of your wallet, controlled by you with your private key. No one can move it around other than you. And if you store your content on a decentralized storage network like IPFS and attach your domain to it, then you have a website that only you can put up and only you can take down. So it's a way for people to use the internet in a censorship-free way. That's super exciting. I think especially right now in the United States and kind of the climate we're in, right? Domain names have been used as a kind of censorship attack vector for free speech. And I think it's it's interesting that we're actually seeing blockchain kind of tackle that. I don't, I don't know how you like, I, how you feel about that. <laughs> like the problem is, right? Like I think kind of the Pandora's box of free speech is that people will use it for things that you don't want. So it's just my background. Like my family's from the Soviet Union. The time that we lived in there, like um, when I grew up, this was 80s, people would get arrested by the KGB for owning a book that actually happened. So that was not a free society, right? And people weren't actually thinking about free speech in terms of promoting stuff that we don't like. It was like political speech, right? But we live in a free society in the US and I think that conversation is different, but also has those same, that same impact, right? The same meaning. Yeah, and I think as we think about this technology and you know why it's important, we think that specifically political speech is the most important. That's the if you look around the world and you say like, you know, what are things that people are not allowed to say that they want to say? It's definitely in that category. I think now part of what's happened is is that the internet was initially this pretty open place, especially I mean I think it was in the 90s it was pretty anarchic in a lot of ways. I think even in the 2000s you could say that that was true in a lot of places around the world. And that over time, it's kind of like companies and governments have gotten a little bit more of a handle on it. And now we're in this place where it's much more centralized, where it's much easier for governments around the world to be able to control what their people are saying, doing, reading. And maybe in some ways, it's actually easier for them now that they have these tech tools than maybe even a couple of decades ago. So it's it, it seems to me to be kind of a rising, increasing problem around the world. Yeah, it's strange. You know, we have a... I think unlike any other time in the world, we have access to more information than any human can consume, right? (laughs) So (laughs) honestly, I'm not sure if like strict censorship in terms of I can't get this idea out is there, but I think what we do have is this kind of massive 
uh, censorship where I have an idea that cannot go viral because the publishing platforms, including domain names, will block it. It's not that like Cloudflare blocks a website that they can't go and post somewhere else, right? It's the idea that that point where people go look at that that, that news is no longer available to them, and you lose your your audience. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't build a business or a web presence around ideas that are politically unpopular in a lot of places in the world. If you were in China, this wouldn't be possible. If you were in Iran, this wouldn't be possible. Your website would be taken down. You would be stopped. You would not be able to build a global audience around your thing. So, can you describe a bit how like your actual technology works with regards to the internet? Because internet yeah. is really complicated, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, there, there there are multiple vectors for for censorship, but the the way that our tech works, it's really solving two problems. One is around the domain name as an asset itself, and in the traditional domain name world, there is the traditional DNS system. There is an organization called ICANN, which is the a central body that approves and controls how everything works. And in that system, there are uh, licensed custodians. And those custodians are companies like GoDaddy or Google Domains or whomever. And it is impossible for you to store your own domain. They store the domain for you, and they can move it around for you, and they can take it away from you. So in the case of a court order or in the case of some other action, your domain can be removed from your control. So just like what cryptocurrency gives you versus dollars in your bank account, a blockchain domain gives you versus a domain in the traditional world. Only you can move it around. No one else can take it. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is around where content is stored. So we have built a domain name registry that sits on the blockchain. You can purchase domains directly from us and you can configure them. And we'll be launching a decentralized hosting service, which is essentially a wrapper on top of IPFS and other decentralized storage networks that will allow you with a couple of clicks to be able to post content essentially on multiple different nodes, multiple different servers, as well as multiple different decentralized storage networks themselves, so that it would be extremely hard for your website to ever be taken down. So we're making both of those pieces easy, domain names and where you store your content. So .zil is a a top-level domain name. That, That is issued by ICANN, right? It is not issued by ICANN. So it is a top-level domain name in the sense that it functions similarly, but it is not ICANN approved. It's what's called an alternate route. So it will function separately. So how will kind of the leaf nodes actually get access to it? Because you still need to ping some DNS, right? Like if people don't understand what that means, it's like when you type in a browser name and it's a URL in a browser that ends in a .com, there is something that resolves to the .com and IP address, right, for domain names that can resolve .com domain names. And then you can query that DNS server for all the .com domains, right? So how do I find out where the entry point for .zil is? So what would be happening is, is that you would be typing a domain name, a .zil domain name, into your browser, but you would require a Chrome extension in order to be able to view the websites and that Chrome extension, when you type in the domain, it'll be reading the blockchain, finding the associated IPFS hash, and showing you that content. Got it. Um, so you would need Chrome extensions. And so one of the big uh, initiatives for us this year is that we're integrating with as many cryptocurrency wallet extensions as possible, as well as enabling those extensions to read these IPFS hashes and show you content. 
Got it. Cool. Do you guys still, at the end of the day, kind of depend on kind of Google, right? Allowing these Chrome extensions to function. It's one potential attack vector, you could say, that Google could go and make some rule around Chrome extensions. If that were to happen, there would be browsers. So, you know, we're still integrating with we're going to try to integrate natively with uh, with browsers as well. There's also, you know, kind of a big push of crypto-enabled browsers right now. There's there's a lot of, you know, there's Brave, there's Opera who's integrating, and then there's, you know, several others that are kind of becoming either crypto-aware or crypto-native. And so we think it's going to be an ecosystem of tools. And so long as we have multiple options and access points, then that's going to be what's going to help make this thing become a thing. Honestly, like my, like there's, there's hardware censorship attack vectors, but... I think the more important ones are the social ones. If enough people care, it doesn't matter if Google is the only thing that can control it, shut it down or, or not. But what's important is actually getting enough people to use it to the point where they have value in, in having a decentralized uh, domain name service. And building that network of people is, I think, even more important than solving some of the technical challenges. Completely agree. I think the adoption problem is the harder problem and so you know we've been you know thinking a lot about how we want to tackle this and ultimately it comes a little bit from you know a philosophical belief about why we're doing this in the first place but we see the biggest problem to solve is political free speech on the internet that was one of the promises of the early internet in the first place and if we were to look back 25 30 years on the consumer internet i would say that that promise was not delivered on and so that seems to be the big the big need. And again, I would point to places like China where there's, you know, 1.3 billion people and the internet is not, you're not able to access the internet freely. And I think that that's a, that's a growing trend. There's more countries around the world that are moving in that direction than are moving in the other direction. And so it's going to be about finding the people that need this the most. I think Hong Kong was, you know, was also sort of a wake up call. That's a case where you have a group of people that are tech savvy have a message they want to get out and they have a message they want to get out very specifically in China where that message is actively being censored. So when we see situations like that, we think those are the types of lightning rods that could potentially spur adoption for this sort of thing. Do you think enough people that are not political care? <laughs> that's, no. No? Yeah. No, I don't think they do. And I think that it, what's, what's really been kind of interesting about talking to people about this product and talking to people about this business over time is that sometimes when we talk to Americans about this, you know, we get shrugs, you know, like it's not a problem for me. And in the U S you can, for the most part, you can say what you want, but I talk to people who are from almost anywhere else in the world. And the reaction is completely different. It's, well, yeah, of course, like I've had domain names seized from me or where I'm from, like, you're not able to say these things. So I think it's a particularly American perspective to see this as not a big deal. I don't think that's the sentiment that you hear uh, around the world. There's like kind of a, this, I think, at least in the US, this kind of pushback against Silicon Valley trying to solve social problems, right? <laughs> like I, I'm worried that like when, when I talk about blockchain, I'm like, oh, we're gonna solve financial fraud because it's programmable, it's transparent, it's decentralized, it's impossible for any party to like steal your funds because it's just code and software that we can analyze. But fraud is like a social human problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm worried that uh, I may be missing something, you know? 
Yeah, I think that's a good critique, too, because I think that the way these technologies are presented to people, it's as if they are the direct remedy to this other problem. And I don't really think they are in a lot of cases. I think they're more, they're, they're replatforming us. So whenever you replatform us, it's like the ground upon which we walk changes, the rules change. You know, it, oftentimes it'll change in a way that enables these new things, enables greater security, enables greater trust and all this stuff over time. But that's assuming that it also gets adopted in the way that we intended. It's like it's as if we're we're pitching our product 15 years in the future, not our product today. I and mean, I think that's very true, you know, for something like what we're doing, uh, where we'll be solving or helping to solve some very small piece of this problem in the short term, and there will be uh, negatives to that in the short term as well. It's not as if free speech is a solved problem when the tech goes live. It's much more like this replatforming has the potential to change the way that we communicate on the internet. It's a much more subtle and evolutionary concept probably than the way it's intended. And I, I'm thinking of all kinds of different like blockchain for social good conversations that I've witnessed or heard over the years. And I'm sure you have too. And the claims are, um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty, yeah. they're, they're pretty big. And, uh, you know, uh, we who are actually building this stuff are like, well, yeah, that sounds totally possible in 20 years, okay. you know? <laughs> yep. So, so I was, you know, a kid in the nineties or a teenager and I started programming and experiencing playing around with the internet and I kind of saw the rise of Facebook. And at the time, nobody could predict that Facebook would be this like giant company. And that, like, this, the newsfeed, the stupid thing, would be, like, this three-headed monster, right, where they're, like, feeding you what you're thinking. <laughs> I'm trying to predict what is the three-headed monster of blockchain and what we're building. Like, uh, do you guys, do, do you think that, like, uh, the technology, if we had perfect censorship resistance, do you think there's side effects to that that are really bad? <laughs> so I think there's a lot of negatives because there are bad people that will use tools for bad things. I have a hard time envisioning how that's substantially different from the current environment that we're in. I don't see people who use the internet for bad things struggling to get their word out that much now. So I guess the way I kind of have it in my head is, is that over time, what winds up happening is, is that when we have openness at the protocol layer, you know, we have a new security model. So there's no one person or company or government or whatever that can be a gatekeeper. So that creates uh, one level of security for all parties. But then we create this new problem where anybody can kind of come in and muck it up for everybody else. And then I think what you happen, what you'll see there is you'll see a lot of different types of filtering, similar to what you have in social networks. You know, Facebook says, this is okay. YouTube disagrees and says it's not okay and pulls it. So you'll start to see that sort of thing where applications will start to kind of choose your internet for you. You will choose your application. Your application will choose your internet. And through this method, we will negotiate together as a society on what's okay. And you and I can disagree and we can see a different version of the internet, which you would say is essentially already happening yeah. on social media. So I don't think that's substantially different than what we'll see today. It's just that we have this different security model so that in cases where somebody wants their content to go viral and most people agree that it should, it can. So I think those are probably the cases. 
uh, where it's the most critical and the most useful. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, I think the platforms that are the, actually hold the the customer captive, you know, they, they, they own the screen time right at the end for the end user will still maintain kind of control over no matter how decentralized and open the internet gets, right? If you're trying to get to the, you know, 1 billion Facebook users, you need to go through Facebook, right? However many YouTube users there are and so forth. I still think that the power dynamic does change though in this future version of the internet because what will wind up happening is, is that if the user controls their data, then it's much easier and Facebook doesn't control your data, then Facebook essentially becomes this like UI layer. You know, it's closer to kind of like how, you know, like our, our decentralized wallets, you know, become really just the UI layer for us, but we store our stuff. And so when that happens, then all of a sudden there could be 30 Facebooks competing at the UI layer for my attention, but I control my social graph and I control my data so I can just feed it into those. And you could potentially, I think, see less of these kind of like walled gardens simply by virtue of the fact that you just flip it. Now the user can just give read access or whatever. I think that's my like, that's the optimistic version of the social yeah, media yeah. universe that I, that I see. And <laughs> whether or not we will, we will get there, I think, is, uh, is a different question. But I'm hopeful that that's kind of one of the end states that we would see here uh, and that that would help. That's a good point. I think if, if we can increase, I guess, with, I guess in finance terms, liquidity of, of my identity, right? Like if I can move it from Facebook to another platform with ease, with like little cost to me, then it becomes easier to do that. And it blows up their business model too. Right. So all of a sudden, like Facebook essentially like their business model is we figured out a way to get your data. Now we get to sell it. If they don't do that, then all of a sudden we're not the product anymore. We're the customer again. And they have to deliver a service in a way that we want and maybe deliver a service that's so good that we're willing to pay them a little bit for it yeah. or something like that. I think like to me, what was really interesting about tokens outside of like the consensus mechanism for it is that it's a new business model for social networks, for groups, right? Communities that have like common interests that are building, you know, this body of knowledge through the connections, right? That they can monetize them in a way that doesn't involve advertisement. So I think the the ugly truth about social networks, right, is like you build a community, you get users, and then you stuff things that people don't want that you can make money on, right? Which is ads. <laughs> But if you can like use a token, right, to actually monetize the strength of that community, it's a totally different model and the result could be a better like community itself, right? That was, I think, missing from the internet. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really tell us when it was happening. Like they didn't say, hey, like over the next few years, we're going to collect all this stuff on you and then we're going to make a fortune by selling it. We were sort of ignorant of that as it was happening. I mean, everybody knew what was happening, right? Right, but we didn't. We didn't know the. We didn't know the impact because we didn't know the scale of it. And I, I just know as an early Facebook user, I thought it was just this thing for college kids. Yeah. And I thought that you know people were just going to be posting a few pictures. I didn't realize that eventually it was going to be a digital store of my entire life and yeah. my friend's entire life. I didn't anticipate that as I opted in initially. And it, uh, day after day after day, it, you know, it did this, you know, we, <laughs> we were the lobsters getting slowly cooked right, in the yeah. pot. And then eventually we turned back and we're like, oh, wow, they have, they've got everything. Yep. And almost everyone, right? Three billion users <laughs> right. or something like that. That I didn't anticipate, that there could be one platform with that, with all of the humanity basically on it, which is kind of crazy. My usage of Facebook is kind of faded. It seems like the space is aligned with like this transition from 
the old school internet, which is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, although I use Twitter a lot simply because that's where all the fun crypto stuff happens. <laughs> <laughs> but with, with this new emerging technology, it almost seems like a, a generational past, right? Is that simply because the people that grew up building the, you know, the Facebook are now old and can build new things? Or, or is it just really society is actually moving away from uh, these centralized platforms? I think that it wasn't clear what the downside. I mean, centralization has so many benefits from an efficiency perspective. It's so easy to get going, go fast, all that sort of stuff, build tools. So there were so many benefits to it that it wasn't until we really saw the downsides until we saw like, and I think that this was really a function of scale. Like it wasn't actually a danger to us until it got to this size. Now that it got to this size that even small issues with identity, for example, like the fact that Facebook wasn't able to identify all these, you know, fake users that allowed for an attack vector, you yeah. know, on our society and so on and so on and so forth. It wasn't until it got to its scale that it kind of became a problem. And I, I think that, you know, I mean, I had heard, you know, my more libertarian-minded friends talking even back in 2008 and 2009 about how dangerous this was. To me, at least, they sounded kind of like, you know, paranoids in their log cabins in the middle of the woods. It didn't actually <laughs> seem to me at the time like a real problem. And I was dead wrong. Uh, they were right. And so I just think that it wasn't at the point in time in which it became obvious that's when I think the dynamics started to shift. But I don't think that it's shifting in the way that people are changing their behavior. I just think it's shifting in the way that people don't want it anymore. They want to change. There's no solution. Everyone's still using Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. It's just now we know we want something different and we don't know what that is. I'm curious what will be the the big use case for blockchain, if, if there will be one. Because at the time, again, early internet, nobody knew that Facebook was going to be it kind of this kind of boring human connection of just poking somebody or sharing a photo would be the most valuable thing you can build. So I don't know, like right now it seems like payments, right? We can move value around, we can do store value, like the, all those things seem really cool, but I don't know if that will actually be the thing that is the most killer app 10 years from now. I'm hoping it's a privacy preserving social network, right? That's a replacement for Facebook, but <laughs> me <know>. too. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really hard to say. It seems like payments will be part of whatever that future use case is, but maybe payments aren't enough on their own and that it's, it's going to need to be something more comprehensive, but I don't know. I think that's a hard thing to predict. So you guys are building a product which is unique for the space because I feel like there's as many protocol projects as there are users. <laughs> what do you guys want from a protocol, like from, from your perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, yeah, people ask us all the time. They're like, so wait, what's your, what's your business model again? Like, we sell domains. We're like, hmm. That, that makes sense. Yeah. That's easy. <laughs> wait, you could explain it in, in five words. Um, so, and we get this question a lot too. And so from our perspective, you know, we're building a product for the end user and we want that product to be uh, cryptocurrency agnostic. So when we talk to users, they say to us, if we're going to use a tool like this, if we're going to use a domain name for payments, we want to be able to pay in whatever currency we want. Bitcoin be the most common, Ethereum probably the second most, and so on and so on. And so our users are essentially saying, we don't care what blockchain you use. Uh, we don't care what protocol you're on. We just want you to deliver this set of features. So we see the decision on what protocol to use or what blockchain to build on 
as essentially being uh, our consider a developer consideration. So essentially, like we are the customer of the blockchain in that scenario. And so if we are the customer, then we want a robust, decentralized blockchain. We want fast transactions. We want cheap transactions. We have a lot of things where people are going to want to do transactions, do, to do things with their domain names. For example, uh, if you want to add your Bitcoin address to your domain name, that's a transaction. So you'd have to pay a transaction fee in order to do that. So we need to have low fees in order for that feature to be fully embraced. So yeah, those are the key things. And of course, a platform that we believe is going to be around for the long term. So yeah. the cheap fast is, is like the easy part, I think, to solve. <laughs> That's great to hear yeah. <laughs> from an actual, from a builder that, yeah, is, that yeah. is music to my ears. Yeah, I think the harder part is getting enough social stickiness in a currency, like a cryptocurrency, that it doesn't go away. I think that's kind of like the the amazing part of a Bitcoin is that so many people have it now that it's just probably going to be around forever. You know, <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, part of the challenge with trying to get my parents to use anything crypto related is that they don't understand public keys, private keys, addresses. If I tell them go send a <laughs> go send dollars to this like you know string of addresses it's meaningless to them mm-hmm. like I, I think the UX around um, addressability is, is just so bad right now and it's actually easily hacked there was a in my, from my point of view a really hilarious virus that would detect that you have copied a Bitcoin address and would replace in the copy buffer in your operating system the with a destination address that was going to the virus owner, right? The attacker. So you as a user, right, you copy and you paste, can't really do this like fast comparison or these like long string of hexadecimal digits like the same, right? (laughs) Wow. That is a scary attack. I had never heard of that. Oh my gosh. Now I'm like, I'm going to be paranoid now whenever I copy paste. Yeah, I mean, this is such a it's such a weird thing to explain to anybody who who tries to use cryptocurrency for the first time. And if you rewind to the early Internet, you know, where people were using IP addresses, it was basically before the consumer Internet could even catch on. Because, like, how could I tell you about a website even before search? How could I tell you about a website and have you go there if it's just a random string of numbers? So it wasn't even until we had these the DNS system, these labels, that we were able to start building these digital presences online that became the you know the consumer web that we all use. So it it feels really fundamental as like a starting point. And so the way that it works with our tech is so you'll have a domain name, uh, is controlled by you with your private key, it's sitting inside of your wallet. You sign a message and writing information to the blockchain saying my BTC address equals this, my ETH address equals that, my Solana address equals something else. And then wallets, when I type it in, wallets can read the blockchain and drop in the address. So it's a way for me to associate my addresses in sort of like an official registry that I control. And the net effect of this is that I kind of get like a closer to like my like a Venmo account type thing. I get an ID that's very easy for people to remember, easy for people to share, and it works for all of my cryptocurrency payments. And it could theoretically work across all cryptocurrency wallets. So I just can tell everybody this one domain, uh, everyone can use it to pay me. We no longer need to even see the addresses. The addresses could be completely invisible from new users. 
And even this conversation of which currency do I want to receive can be removed from the equation too because my domain is pre-configured with the ones that I accept. So we don't even need to talk about that. It's two major questions. What are my addresses? What currency do you want to receive? We can abstract both of those, uh, both of those questions and just share, share a name. Cool. I'm really looking forward to that because I think the UX around human identity is, is really, really bad <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, so it's super nice to have you here, and this was a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any questions for our guests or want to continue this discussion, please check out our website at solana.com. That's S-O-L-A-N-A.com. There are links to our Discord where most of our communication happens in the company. Also, you should check out our GitHub page where we post all of our code for you to check out and even help out with github.com slash solana dash labs you can also follow us on twitter at solana thanks for listening see you next week